Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. I'm joined this morning by Maggie G. Maggie is the author of The Red Children, which is coming out on the 7th of April. Maggie, it's lovely to have you here. Lovely to be here. Hello. Hi. Really nice to have you. Now, The Red Children is an absolutely brilliant book. I loved it. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, it's lovely to hear that. Um, yes, it's a very it's a difficult book to describe because it's a fable or a fairy tale for adults. Um, one of my great heroes is Hans Anderson, Hans Christian Anderson, who who wrote all the great fairy tales like The Emperor with The Emperor's New Clothes um, and The Ugly Duckling and um, The Snow Queen, which is the origin of Frozen, which all mothers of children, I think, have seen. Um, and <laughs> probably and children um so it's a fable for grown-ups and it's really about how we see each other mm-hmm. and particularly how we understand each other as as we're perpetual migrants or wanderers really human beings that's what we've always been um with global warming there will be more migration and in my book um some rather strange migrants arrive in Kent about 10 years in the future. And it's about how this little town, Ramsgate, reacts and how they, how they grow to see these strange migrants who at first just appear as sort of wonders or monsters and how, how the new people, the red people, see us. Um, I, I could read you a tiny. Do you want me to, or would you rather I chatted a bit more about no, it? No, I would absolutely love you to read some of it because I think it would be really helpful for listeners to get a little bit of a flavour of the book. It's got talking ravens, so if I suddenly... Ah! Well, no, not me, it's the raven. Um, the first red people came over by sea. Once upon a time, Ramadan Bakri a 17-year-old sea cadet, arriving at the harbour early just after the January sun had risen, found them sitting, damp and large and red and shaking with cold, on the edge of the quay. They looked up in wonder at the rising sun to the east, then turned their heads to peer west, over the bright crossed hatched lines of the masts of the yachts at Ramsgate. Now it's called Redsgate, the same small town on the southeast point of England. People started to call us Redskate as a joke because of the migrants. But who laughs last, laughs longest. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. That is an absolutely beautiful extract. And I think that it typifies the book as a whole. Because what you do is you are doing so much with very little prose, which is what struck me when I was reading it, how hard you're making the words on the page work. 
I love the imagery at the beginning of the red people who have come and the red children who've arrived. And you, I find it so interesting that you're talking about the emperor's new clothes because these children arrive and, and they are not clothed. Um, how important was it to you from the beginning that you wove in all these kind of imageries and ideas from other older stories that we have? It's, it's not important to me that people pick up the, the literary references. I want the reader to enjoy the story in the way that you enjoy a story told you by, by your, your parents when you're, when you're very small. Um, but I think it gives it, if, if, for example, you love Elizabeth Gaskell's Cranford, um, which is a story by a woman that tells you things that only a Victorian woman would be telling you yes. about household economy and about the servants and about kindness. She says it's a story about kindness. Um, and she does sit somewhere behind the book and so does Hans Anderson. But really and truly, I want this to work like a tale that's told and oral storytelling. It depends on having quite carefully chosen words and not too much extra. So I did have that in mind. Um, and I hope this is encouraging to people who are writing books at the moment, because it can feel impossible. You can feel bogged down. You can think you'll never finish. This book, I actually started back in 2013. So that is nine years ago. And if you just keep going, and you don't despair of it, or when you despair of it, you put it aside and write something else, you will get there. You will get there. It, this is a short book. I knew I'd get to the end in the end. I use word count rather ruthlessly, and I just think if I've done another 500 words, that's great. 300 words, I'll take that. 100 words on a bad day or no words at all, I'll do some tomorrow. I love that attitude. Um, when you talk about um, writing a contemporary novel and this you know idea of people in the past writing what mattered to them do you see this this novel tackles like you say it's about how we see each other but it's very much about future issues that we are experiencing now in the present but that we will be experiencing far more of it's about migration it's about feeling threatened it's about other people coming to what we see as being our own country. Do you see this as being a contemporary novel? Oh, very much so. Yeah, in fact, I've never managed to write about the past. I, what really interests me is understanding this present and this future, which have not yet been described. So we have the first draft. And to me, that's very exciting. And it doesn't change as I get older. I still want to understand now. Um, mm. And if you set something in the future, that allows you to maybe extrapolate, exaggerate things that are happening now. So the sort of xenophobia that we see when boats of migrants arrive, you know, they may be doctors, they may be, we don't know who they are. They may be criminals, but they may equally be doctors and business people and teachers and nurses. Um, and in any case, they are the future. They will become us once we came here mm -hmm. um, or our parents, grandparents, or go back to deep time. And one of the interesting things about the Kent coast, which people can be quite snotty about, actually, 
is that it's where English history began. As this book reminds people, it's where the Romans invaded, just down the coast from Ramsgate at Pegwell Bay is where Julius Caesar, um, you know, his men arrived, um, and the Vikings. And of course, it's just where you get to first, but it does make people feel threatened. We're all rather proud of our history, but that strand in people that wants to be a little bit sort of impressed by Nigel Farage, mm -hmm. I have to say, it's a, it's a, since he's always lost down here, um, it's not a majority, but I understand they've sort of earned their fear because they have fought off invaders before, failed to fight them off, and actually had children with them. And that's who we are. The, the British are the most mixed people, some of the most mixed people on the planet. Yeah, which is ironic. Um, you obviously, the book mentions Britain first quite a lot as well. And these people who are fiercely protective of what they see as their identity as being British without understanding that this is an identity that is very mixed, that essentially we are an island of people who have come here before uh, us. Yes, you mean the PBF. This is my little, yes. little sort of yeah. neo-fascist party. Although, in fact, there's an element of comedy and ineptness about them. They're not probably as frightening as some people in those parties are in real life. Um, and one of the things I suggest actually is that if there are more legitimate outlets for those feelings, if perhaps if we weren't quite so cynical about certain forms of love of local history or patriotism, then maybe the really worrying bit of that that goes underground, that is sort of, you know, adolescents in their bedrooms with fantasies of greatness. Um, I think I try and suggest in this book that it's better when things are spoken. It's better when people are talking in the pub, whatever they're saying, than if they're not saying it, because what is locked inside people's minds, I think, is even more dangerous, actually. When it's out there, it can be argued with, laughed at. Um, so yeah, it's also a book about freedom, I think. Mm. Very much comes across. And I really love this idea of trying to write the now, but using that as a way of projecting ourselves into a future that looks relatable and looks understandable. The future that you've built into this book doesn't feel like a leap it doesn't feel like we're inhabiting a very different world um, and I think that can sometimes be the danger with future novels is that it can feel that we're in this world that feels so removed from ours that you can almost discount the warning um, the way that you write about the virus but not a particular virus I really like that at what stage of the virus that we've experienced, were you writing the virus in the book or was that in it when you first started the book? Yeah, it's a very good question. It, it wasn't in it when I first started. Um, and I had to actually be careful of putting in too much. It's, mm. not, a, it's not at all a major theme of the book, um, but it was probably impossible to write during lockdown in that sense of fear and threat without it somehow appearing in the prose. Mm. Um, and if you look back to the 1918 wave of flu, it's there in all of 
but you know, most of the novels that were written, Virginia Woolf's, um, lots of others. Um, but I tried to make it timeless. And actually, I have written about the danger of plague before in a book of mine called The Flood, also set in the future, also about global warming. And if you're, I, I mean, I love fairy tales, but I also love science. And if you are interested in science, you can't help seeing as we encroach more and more on the world of other animals, there will be more and more um, diseases that will jump mm. species. It's because of the way we're living. It's not something inevitable. Um, but yes, it's, um, this is a, I, very interesting what you say about fiction of the future. Because I think when you first start writing it, and some of my books are realistic about the present, but some have been future. Um, and the first one I wrote was called The Ice People. And I think I wanted to make it too futury. By which I mean, I invented a lot of new language. Well, there was a new edition 10 years later and none of the new language had been proved right. And most of it, so I've discovered it's better to be a bit classic mm. and not. And also I lost confidence after 10 years when both virtual reality and wrist phones had not appeared and I took them out. Well now, wrist phones and virtual reality. <laughs> yes. I'm very big so it's better to go classic and stick with your first thoughts I think mm. yeah I think that you do it you do it so lightly that it does it becomes something that we can relate to and that we can kind of project ourselves into which then kind of impacts on on how we view the present as well and the understanding that all of this is connected now you say that you love science how much did you research um, to create the world? Well, I always do masses of research. And let's face it, writers, that's the enjoyable bit, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's quite wonderful as an adult to have the chance to educate yourself. Um, mm. And, um, yeah, so I always try and read everything I can, both about... Um, it, I've written two novels about Uganda, and you have to go to the country, and you have to learn everything you can, or you will just make an idiot for yourself, basically. Um, and with, I mean, I think it's very important to do the research. So, and I was so lucky. I mean, I do think Google is an overrated resource. By that, I mean, if you get a chance to travel. Now, that's much harder if you're a young mother with kids. But if you can even spend a week, if you can take your children somewhere, things will happen to you. And in my experience, those things go straight into the book. And what happened to me was, I went to Gibraltar because of my husband's work, reluctantly, because all I knew about Gibraltar was, I thought, souvenirs, Taddy Main Street, very, very jingoistic, probably going to have British pubs. I was so wrong. I was so totally wrong. And what happened to me was that I met these Neanderthal experts, Neanderthal scientists, and discovered that Gibraltar was, in fact, for a start, the main street is such a tiny part of it, and most of it is this amazing upper rock, which has got the most extraordinary burden, bird life, animal life, still got what I would call Neanderthal flora and vegetation. It's since become a World Heritage Site because it is in fact the place where the first so-called Neanderthal skull was found. And this was before a skull was found in the Neanderthal in the Neander Valley and named, gave the name 
Neanderthal to that kind of human being, and it should have been Gibraltar woman. Pure serendipity. I just met two lovely, clever people who wanted to share what they knew. And instantly I thought, ah, so I see, so nothing we're told about the deep past is necessarily true. Um, I've always been interested in racism and I was sort of appalled by it and I've tried to write about it. I've also got a book coming out, um, 20th anniversary edition of the White Family, which is about British racism, with a, this time with a forward by Bernadine Evaristo. Um, and I suddenly saw that the way we look at earlier species of human beings was a form of racism. In other words, everyone just led up to us. So they were stupider than us, smaller than us, mysteriously stooped and looked very ape-like. But then meeting these two wonderful experts, the Finlaysons, they told me that, oh, actually, that's wrong. Their brains were probably as large or larger than us. They survived three or four times as long as we have to date. Um, they cooked, they had jewellery, they had a form of art, and there, there's a Neanderthal drawing, which is repeated throughout the book. Um, mm -hmm. And very interestingly, they are in our own genetics. Um, so we have Neanderthal genes. And it is quite interesting that there have been two uh, papers saying different things since COVID arrived, but there are certain genes thought to be protective against um, mm -hmm. COVID. And there are certain genes that might not be, but those little bunches of genes came from Neanderthals. So it's all part of our fantastic variety, which is always a good thing, I think. Mm. And so you talk about this kind of serendipity when you are writing mm. um, and, and kind of this, this idea, I suppose, of keeping our eyes wide open when we're writing something that we can't be too fixed. You never know where the next thing is going to come from. I remember listening to an interview with Nathan Englander once, I think it was, and he was talking about how when you're writing this sort of magic happens where everything that you encounter somehow relates to the book. That's when you realize that you're writing the right book and that all of this kind of builds to something else. And you were speaking about in Gibraltar, the, the glories, the fauna and the birds as well. Was this the stage at which the ravens came into your book by any chance? Uh, yes, because Corvids and birds of prey were very important to the lives of Neanderthals. There are ravens on Gibraltar. Um, and I discovered that in the 19th century, um, ravens were more or less driven out of Britain, for partly um, by farmers and other people, great culls. They are enormously interesting birds. They are um, the warning birds in Viking mythology, and they look at the past and they look at the future. Um, but anyway, we thought they were a nuisance, so we drove them away up to Scotland. And during this century, they've slowly come back. And I think about 10 years ago, there was a sighting on the cliffs of Dover. And there is a rumour that there are ravens around the harbour here. Now, I'm never quite sure if I'm seeing crows or ravens, but they're very intelligent birds, probably among the most intelligent birds. And I can't believe they don't talk. Um, but mine, I have a little joke, because I think human beings are a bit arrogant in thinking other species don't have language. So I have two ravens, and one of them, the man, the male raven, who is very 
um, self-confident, but a bit less educated than the woman of the pair. He's very sure that human beings don't have language. He says it's just a series of sounds at best. I loved that bit. I thought it was a brilliant way of, of talking about you know, the divide between or what we see as the divide between the human and the non-human and how arrogant we are when it comes to language. How important was it to you that you kind of used these elements of fable to be able to talk about the wider world? Well, this is a thing. I think the British particularly have got a problem about what they see as political writing. It means dull or preachy to, to them. <laughs> Whereas really, I think, what would be the point of being a writer if I couldn't express all of myself? Mm. Um, and I never want to preach because it doesn't work. Um, so I want to do it through irony and satire and just telling a story and hoping my readers will feel with the characters. Um, I think that's the most important thing. I feel that um, empathy to me is a much abused word. Um, but literary reading, reading of novels, don't, I don't quite like the term literary, um, but it, it's a distinction that's sometimes made. Um, if we say literary means novels where the characters are as important or more important than the plot, um, I think the great gift that fiction gives is allowing both the writer and the reader to deeply imagine and become other people. Um, all the books I love make me become their characters. I mean, Nadifa Mohammed recently, um, The Fortune Man, quite extraordinary how she empathizes with, you know, first with a, a Jewish woman and then with a Somali petty crook. And her, her imagination makes readers become um, characters that they may have never met in their real life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I think is the best thing we can do. In, in human terms, is to try and imagine the other. That's a hugely important point. I have realised that very often when people, there seems to be this sort of need for people when they're talking about reading at the moment to want to see themselves reflected on the page. And people say, oh, I feel seen by that book. Or, oh, yes, that's definitely relates to my life. And what I love about reading is that you can enter into a world that you know nothing about a world that you haven't previously encountered and I think it's so important to make that distinction that this is what the really very best of literature can do that it can bring other worlds to us and show us that there isn't one world there are many and that we don't need to constantly see ourselves reflected um, yeah I think that's really important I totally agree, Ellie. I couldn't agree more. And in a curious way, if it's good enough, you find yourself in others. Um, mm -hmm. And the writer is, of course, finding bits of themselves they didn't know about. And that can even be in your villains. I, 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 Virginia Woolf talked about finding your unacted parts. And in a sense, reactions of indignation and hatred to this person or that person they're natural, but they're not necessarily, they don't take you anywhere. You won't understand why that person is like that or what they're doing, unless maybe you find a part of yourself that might have been like that if things were different 
or that might still be like that. Um, I, I think indignation is one of the least useful emotions, really. Um, it's okay if it makes you do something good on behalf of someone else mm. or something helpful, but um, I think we have to get beyond it, really. And as you say, it's lovely to find out. It's that moment of truth, isn't it? When you read a character, you think, yes, I see. I felt that, or I could feel that. But I think it doesn't have to be a person like yourself. Sometimes it can be reluctant recognition, and you can think, oh, God, you know, oh, oh, dear. Um, and that's also sort of educative, isn't it? Um, I think it can be quite, well, not reassuring, but it's it's a very discomforting feeling when you're reading something, particularly if you're struggling with one of the characters. They can be quite a difficult character, and you think, oh, me, maybe I'm finding them difficult because they're actually too like me. I'm seeing these, I'm seeing these things that I I don't want to be seeing, but then obviously again that shows the power um, of books that you can be forced to look into yourself and think oh my goodness I maybe need to do something about that <laughs> tendency or I maybe need to do something about this this part of me as well. Yes I'm, I'm really with you I think one of the things I enjoy doing is misunderstanding because it seems to me I'm always misunderstanding and that understanding too late or you know, trying to understand what I did or why I did something. And I think in novels, you can turn that into humour as well mm. as tragedy. And I really always, I always hope to make people laugh. Uh, even, you know, sometimes my very well-meaning characters, I sort of laugh at them in an affectionate way. Because, um, I mean, I'm well-meaning, but I do get things wrong. Um, and... Uh, I've got great lists of things I've got wrong in the past. And, you know, in, in a way, a book, I think, is sort of exploring, isn't it? It's trying to do better, trying to understand something. It doesn't really work, I think, if you set out to write a book knowing what you feel about an issue, because really that won't work. It will come out preachy. And, you know, there has to be an element of exploration and play Mm -hmm. um, even to keep you going, particularly if you're busy. And I know, you know, I love the name of your, your website because we've all said it. I'm too busy to write in a sort of irritated way when someone says, are you still doing your writing? <laughs> I'm too busy to write. Um, but I suppose people writers have always been too busy to write and yet they've gone on doing it. Absolutely. I think that um, writing is one of the best ways uh, to change your mind as well. So that if you think that you think something about the thing, the more that you write it, the the more you can kind of realise that there's other ways of seeing and other ways of looking into something as well. It's a surefire way of sort of figuring things out as you go. So when you are writing, if you see it as this kind of exploration, how much of a planner are you beforehand? Hmm. Um, I am, but that's to avert panic, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I think novels are very difficult because of the length. There is this sense of a, at the beginning of a gulf opening up in front of you. Mm. I do two things. Um, I write the end. It won't be that end. Mm. I tell myself it is. I literally write the last few pages. So I've got something to throw the rope to. Mm. Um, and then at various stages, I do plan in order to make it easier for myself. But with this book, and with many of my books, 
the original plan is wildly different from what I ended up with. I intended to write a Neanderthal book set in Neanderthal times in caves. And now I'm writing a book and in Gibraltar. And I ended up with a book set in Ramsgate um, and set in the, in the 2030s, in, you know, in the future, and a comedy rather than a kind of, um, I don't know what it was going to be, but it was going to be an adventure novel of some kind um, that sort of, that had parallels to our time. But it's, it's, you can't write a book that's too far off who you are, I think. Um, characters, yes. Themes, yes. Going somewhere to research something and write something totally new, great. But it still has to relate to your own core in some way. Um, yeah, but planning I do believe in, in that I think I'll take anything. So if word count will help me, I will tell myself I must write, you know, while the family are away, I will write a thousand words a day. Or something, or I will get to, you know, by March, I will get to now. Um, but I also think it, writing is so difficult. I believe in great kindness to myself as a writer. I mm -hmm. forgive myself for 10 days when I haven't written a word um, because I know I will do it. So I think a sort of mixture of ruthlessness and sort of bribes is what works for me. Um, and I always feel when I teach writing, which I do at Arvon, I'm doing an Arvon course this summer um, in Shropshire, uh, or when I teach at Bath Spa, where I'm professor of creative writing, I think I have one job, very simple job, encourage people with their writing. Mm. That's my aim. Encourage, encourage, encourage. Mm. And so if you were to give anybody encouragement just now who's listening to this, what do you think could be one of the most helpful things to tell people who are just starting out? Well, at this very moment, I know because you know because we talked about this briefly before the podcast started. It's the morning when we've seen that, you know, much broader incursion into Ukraine by Russia. Mm. Um, and it is tempting to feel that writing doesn't matter. Mm. Well, why do we write? We write to record. Partly we write to record who we are as human beings and what we feel and think at this moment in time, which look back a hundred years hence, will be lost. Mm. We don't record it. And what everybody does would be slightly different. So it's always worth doing. And I find it some kind of offence against blankness and against fear. Mm. Um, I think, what can you do as a writer? I don't know. I emailed some Russian friends to say, yeah, I love them and I can't wait till we can stay with each other again. Mm. Um, but writing and reading, it is some kind of um, block against block against blankness, the blankness of weapons mm. and things. Um, I think it is, yeah. What do you but also against... No, sorry, carry on. No, you carry on. <laughs> I know I was just thinking against destruction as well, I suppose. If you're making something, it feels like a deliberate... Like you say, it's a deliberate fence, and it is that, well, we are creating something when the world feels like it's in this state of sort of unravelling and disrepair. It's empowering in a sense, and it is a creation of order 
when we're afraid of losing order. Um, and for me, the main thing is, and I can, I can tell you this from a very, very recent experience. I was commissioned um, to write a short story for the Royal Academy magazine, inspired by a work of art. I hadn't chosen the work of art, and I was going through the work of Paul Orega, which is so wonderful and mm. so relevant to, and she came from a country with a history of dictatorship. She has seen and suffered a lot. Um, and I thought, I cannot write this story. I sat down with the, the picture that I wanted, I thought, and I thought in a vacuum, I thought, I can't write it. And then I thought, oh no, I remember what I do. And I got a notebook and I started writing. Well, I've written 17 books and I've still forgotten what to do. And once I started writing, I had written the story. When I went to bed, I had written the story just because my hand started moving over the paper and my, my heart and soul, I suppose, were not afraid in the way that the top level of my brain was mm. of A, of not being able to write and B, of what was happening in Ukraine. So I would mm. say, don't forget, you've actually got to sit at a table with paper, computer, whatever you use, and do it before you say to your friend, I can't write, I just can't write. Well, no, you can't, mm. you're talking to your friend. <laughs> Absolutely. And so you mentioned you're, you're a hugely prolific writer, um, but you also are a mother. How have you managed to kind of balance all the demands that are needed? I think the answer to that is that you and your co-host on this website, <laughs> you've got six children between you. Well, I only have one and um, she's grown up now. She's in her 30s and she's a writer herself. Rosa Rankin G, um, second novel, Dreamland, came out last year about global warming. Um, so she just encourages me now. Um, uh, she was a teenage character in Virginia Woolf in Manhattan. She was Gerda, a sort of, Hans Anderson, SKP character. Um, when, I, when she was small, I just thought, even if she is with a childminder for an hour, I will then, in that hour, have laser focus. I won't do the washing. I won't clear up. I won't do anything but write. So I learned focus from that. I think, actually, I don't know that I was better when I had less to do. And um, now she's gone, but I have these other jobs. Um, I think it's just in the end, it's you and, well, it isn't the pen because we know it's not the pen anymore, but it's you and that, whatever technology you use and the story. And if you can just keep that there, you will manage. And if you don't attack yourself and criticize yourself, and lambast yourself for not doing enough. You're a genius. If you've got four children and you're writing at all, you're a genius. You've got two children, you're a genius. You've got one child, you're still a genius because you're probably putting so much love and creativity into your child. And you're so tired by bedtime. If you can get up early or if you can, in the middle of the night, wake up and write a bit, good on you. That means later on when those children grow up, you'll write a lot more. By the way, I'm not enormously prolific. I'm just pretty old. And if you write a book every three years and you get to my age, you will have written, as I've written, 17 books. Um, but if you look at people like Doris Lessing, who actually had three children, though she only raised one, um, 
But she, I think, wrote 25 or 30. Um, and how many do you have to write anyway, really? It's just that I keep on wanting to get it right, something new. I want to write something new. But Virginia Woolf wrote, what, I think probably a dozen, maybe less. What matters is that you write the thing that you're here to write. And don't get put off by lack of confidence or other people's criticism. Uh, you have to be a bit unsinkable and a bit stubborn, I think, to write. Mm. Don't you? I mean, you know, I've not had great encouragement at various stages in my life from publishers. And then the book that the publishers didn't like went on to do very well. There's no mm. direct relationship between the book that you write and how it does in the world, I think. I think you have to be exceptionally stubborn. I think you have to be really bloody minded as well to, to do, um, yeah, to, to keep going. Cause there's so much, like you say, there's so much else. There's always the washing and there's always the dishes and there's always that you could be doing something else. And these things can seem like they're a lot more kind of, they're more immediate, aren't they? You can see that the dishes have been done or that the hoovering's been done. Um, and it can feel like a little bit of a, indulgence as well but no you've got to do it because otherwise it like you say it will never get done um i'm really interested in what you said about starting the red children in 2013 so when you started it and then you obviously it's it's now what nine years later um <laughs> yeah so so what what was that that period what did it look like? You're obviously doing other work. Yes, I'm off. Um, I so in that 13 years, I have published two other books. Um, mm. I think it can be a good thing to put a book aside. It's hard to know when to put it aside and when to press on. But I I put this aside, but I knew it was still alive. Um, and each time I came back to it, I saw it a different way. But, I mean, books are not unlike films, which can take a very long time to get made. Um, my first book, I wrote, first published novel, I wrote when I was 25, published it when I was 32. Um, the White Family, which is the book that's with a new edition coming out this spring, um, which was shortlisted for the Orange Prize and the... International Dublin Impact Award that was turned down by everybody in 1995, all the mainstream publishers, and then came out in 2002 and did really well. So yeah. I think just you have to take the long view. You have to hope mm. your life will be long, and you have to believe in your craft, and you have to look at the history of storytelling and see it as a great tradition that you can be part of if you're serious you will add your books to that. And maybe it doesn't have to be done today or this week, but if you do a little bit today, that would be great. And if not, a little bit this week. And the main thing is, it does relate a bit to what you said about, I think before the podcast began, about how some people maybe are only looking to find their truth in books. Um, there's a way in which I hear that very clearly, which is that no one but you can write your own book. That book, if it's not written by you, will be written by no one else because nobody else has lived your childhood, your moments, your, you know, they haven't, they weren't in that patch of sun that day. 
they didn't hear that those words that filled you with either tenderness or mm. horror. So it is your book and it is worth writing. And don't be too upset if you can't get a, an agent or a mainstream publisher. There's still quite a variegated scene out there. And if you keep going, you'll find a way. I can't think of any better advice um, to give to somebody. And particularly, I think, like we were talking about earlier, when we kind of, when it can seem very pointless to continue with art and you can feel, well, I should have, should I have done something else? Should I have done something that sort of acts very obviously on the world? But you really just summed up why we need art. And it's part of, like you say, becoming part of a long tradition, but it's becoming part of being human as well. I think that kind of digging and trying to work out what it means and what it means to be here right now, which is what what I feel the Red Children really captures, which brings us right back to the book. Now, I wonder if we could, if you might be able to see us out today by giving us another reading, because I absolutely loved listening to you. Oh, thank you so much, Ali. And yeah, thank you for liking my book. Um, okay, let's find the right bit. You can cut this pause, can't you? Yes, absolutely. Just managed to muddle itself up with that new story. Um, okay. But who laughs last, laughs longest? Clean sandy beaches, white cliffs striped with black flint, riddled with pigeons' nests, girls' nests, whistling starlings, crows watching out to steal eggs. Though people say nothing ever changed before the red people came, the chalk's always falling, the earth's always warming or cooling. Over millennia, the cliffs have slowly retreated, 30 yards or so every century. At low tide, you see lines of stumpy white pillars like a forest of teeth that thousands of years ago were cliffs. These thousands of year old cliff stumps are decked with vivid green seaweed every summer that came only 20 years ago from the hulls of Chinese cargo ships. Then they look like stromatolites, layered bacterial rocks, four billion years old. Four billion years ago was the real beginning of this story. Long before the cliffs and the crows, long before humans love and hatred, long before there was sea between us and Europe, long before our town was built in a cradle between two cliff tops, long before the Romans and the Vikings, all of whom landed here and fought and died on our beaches, on this stretch of shore where British history, written history at least, began. And those who stayed turned into us, the children of migrants, the British. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And you. It's lovely, Ali. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can buy all the books recommended on the podcast at uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash not too busy to write, where a portion of each sale goes to support independent bookshops around the country. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow 
and please leave a review. It really helps others to find the podcast. <laughs>